The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Chatter for December 4th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest and Shane Harris that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's episode of Chatter is entitled Pandemics and Political Violence with Brian Michael Jenkins. In the episode, Priest and Jenkins chat about the threat of biological terrorism, the links between social unrest and plagues, the history of public resistance to efforts to protect public health, and more. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, terrorism expert Brian Michael Jenkins on pandemics and political violence. We've seen in the United States a statistical increase of homicides by 38%. It's the largest gain that we've seen in, in many, many decades. People seem to be on edge, quick to violence. That was a feature that was noted in the Middle Ages following the Black Death, and we're seeing it again now. It's not necessarily that the pandemic causes these phenomena that we are seeing now, but pandemics exacerbate the existing inequalities and other fault lines of our society. Brian, thank you for joining me on Chatter today. Thank you for the opportunity. Looking forward to the conversation. For those of our listeners who somehow aren't familiar with your decades of work, how do you how do you summarize your life's research and the topics that you have focused on the most? Well, I've I've, I've spent the the past five decades actually examining the field of political violence, terrorism specifically. Uh, We started uh, RAND's research program on this in 1972, 50 years ago uh, in the fall as well. I tell people, give me another 50 years, I'll have it all sorted out. (laughs) But it has been a fascinating journey for for me. Well, in terms of that long sweep of looking at political violence, you've, you've almost seen it all, right? You've seen 
coming out of the 60s into the early 70s, the wave of political violence in the United States and, and in Europe um, that took one flavor, but then the Middle East terrorism that arose in that era, which was different in some ways from the more recent experience of 9-11 and its aftermath, but you've seen biological terrorism. You've seen attempts at you know chemical weapon terrorism. You've seen mass bombings. You've seen assassinations. And yet, when you look at the long sweep of political violence and terrorism, going back to the anarchist days 100 plus years ago, going back to experiences in Europe and around the world before that, what, what goes around comes around, doesn't it? I mean, aren't these simply reflections of previous waves of political violence? That, that, that's true. Certainly, um, I mean, the, the, word, uh, the word terror uh, as a political instrument and, and terrorism uh, it did not really enter the political lexicon until the, uh, until the early 19th century. But, but certainly the phenomenon itself has uh, far deeper roots. It, it goes back centuries when people have used violence, not simply on the battlefield to, to defeat enemy forces, but have used violence in ways to uh, create fear and alarm. Um, indeed, I've described terrorism as uh, as a mode of, uh, um, uh, really as theater, uh, violence that is aimed at the people watching, um, uh, where it is intended to produce, uh, as I say, fear and alarm that, will cause people to exaggerate uh, the strength of the terrorists and the importance of their cause. That has been a recurring feature. In, in the more recent decades, really over the past half century, we've, we've seen uh, that particular form of violence become increasingly refined. It certainly has taken advantage of uh, a, an arsenal that is available to to almost everybody right now. Uh, weapons have been democratized, so to speak. Uh, but perhaps most of all is the difference in communications that we've seen. You know, it was in 1968 that we saw the first uh, deployment of communication satellites, which enabled us to to watch the news, watch live feed from uplinks um, worldwide. And if you go back to my original concept of terrorism as, as theater, then the ability to reach a, an audience of global proportions has enhanced uh, that particular type of violence at the same time uh, that the possession of weapons of mass destructions by states has discouraged all-out warfare between states. So we've seen a substantial right. shift in the way wars are, are waged. Absolutely. Well, I think some of the themes there actually will weave into the bulk of our conversation here, because I really want to talk to you about how pandemics affect armed conflict, terrorism, the use of biological weapons, picking up on themes in your recent work, including a book called Plagues and Their Aftermath, How Societies Recover from Pandemics. Tell us about the origins of this book. Back in the summer of 2020, how did you come to 
take your expertise on political violence and focus it in on the effects of pandemics as they relate to that and wider societal issues? Well, to be honest with you, I I hadn't set out to write a book about the topic. I I was asked to um, uh, write an essay, which was ultimately published in a in an academic uh, volume in in Europe in Vienna, actually, on how how the pandemic conceivably might affect uh, the realm of political violence. That was clearly in my pasture, but since I was prevented by the pandemic from my my usual travel schedule, uh, I ended up using that time and, and reading more and more books about the great pandemics of history. And it, and it became, uh, in a sense, uh, a, a journey for me to look back at these uh, pandemics, the, the great plague of Athens, the Black Death, the pandemic of 1918, and to try to think about how that might really be replicated in the COVID-19 pandemic. Like any explorer, I, I kept notes and ultimately uh, shared the notes with, with various other people. And one of them said, you know, you have a book in here. And so we basically took all of the notes and stapled them together and turned it over to a publisher. And it ended up with a, a, a book, Plagues and Their Aftermath. It's not really about uh, pandemics themselves. It's not about epidemiology. It's not about the medical issues. Uh, that is far beyond my field. It's really about the consequences of pandemics, not really in terms yeah. of lives lost, but in terms of uh, the economic disruption and devastation, in terms of the way that they deepen uh, divisions in society, in terms of their effects on individual and collective behavior, and the political consequences of, of, of this. So this is less about uh, the dragon breathing fire and more about the, the, the thrashing dragon's tail. <laughs> and that's, it's amazing because you, you, you don't write a history of each pandemic. You're, you're not retelling the story of the, as you said, the, the 1918 pandemic or the Justinian plague or the Black Death, but but you have to know all of those. That is, you're bringing examples, you're bringing similarities and differences from across a dozen or more major pandemics and epidemics. So you, you had to research the heck out of it. And you came to one insight that I hadn't really thought about much, which is that here we are, what, two and a half years, a little over two and a half years into the COVID pandemic. And the societal fatigue wore in so much that even with successive waves in recent months, there's really been no move back towards uh, shutting things down or even forcing masking in many public spaces because it's taken so long and it's been such a, a long trek. And that's not really the case. We tend to think of epidemics as finite events with a limited duration, but that's not true across history, is it? Not at all. You know, uh, you, you're absolutely right. People tend to think of pandemics as, as events with clear beginnings and clear endings, you know, from patient zero to 
in a sense, uh, an official announcement that it's it's over. That's not the historical pattern. Uh, uh, pandemics have very ragged endings and, and often uh, are followed by, as in, as in earthquakes, aftershocks. That is, uh, not simply the new surges, uh, but rather uh, even years later, uh, subsequent waves. I mean, you know, if we go back to the Black Death of, of the 14th century, mm-hmm. uh, the first wave was was 1348 on through about 1351. But there were at at uh, roughly 10 to 20 year intervals uh, recurrences of of the bubonic plague. Um, going on for over the next uh, several hundred years. In the case of the cholera epidemics that swept across Europe in in the 19th century, again, beginning in about 1830 and on up through the early 20th century, there were subsequent waves of, of cholera that, that affected uh, vast areas of, of, of Europe. And of, and of course, cholera remains a remains a problem we're seeing in 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 places like Haiti and some other right. uh, uh, areas of the world where there are conflicts uh, the 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 occurrence of, of of new outbreaks of of cholera so cholera and armed conflict uh, kind of circle each other like binary stars throughout mm. throughout history so it, it, again it it the endings are long and ragged, and one is never entirely certain that it that it's over. I wonder how much of the popular conception of that, not necessarily the the academic conception of it, uh, which is obviously much more uh, historically based, but the popular conception of that in the modern era probably has been influenced by by movies and fictional representations. People can watch a movie about contagion or about an Ebola outbreak. And it fits nicely into a 90 minute or two hour frame where the scientists attack the problem and they, they figure out a way to, to contain it or it becomes a zombie apocalypse. But either way, there is a quick resolution to it. And, and maybe it reduces the public's patience to understand that, that these do become endemic, right? So often many of these aren't finite events like an Ebola outbreak in one country in Africa, and it can be limited, but they end up becoming something that just becomes part of the human fabric. That, that, uh, that's true. And in, in many cases, we see these, these outbreaks of disease uh, become, in a sense, endemic, something that we end up having to live with for a long period of time. I mean, even now, as you point out, uh, uh, people, certainly people in the United States, uh, have declared their own end to the pandemic. They're done with it. That was something we came through. But, you know, you look at the statistics and, and, and while the the death rate has, has, you know, fortunately gone far down, we're still killing on average, uh, COVID-19 is killing uh, a, a, at a run rate of about 120,000 uh, uh, dead a year in the United States alone. 
Right. Um, curiously, that has somehow become an acceptable figure now when uh, if I had said that, well, we're going to have a long term run here of, of flus killing 120,000 people a year, uh, that would have been that would have been uh, completely unacceptable. The, the other thing that I, I think the, the COVID-19 pandemic underscores is that for a variety of reasons, uh, for reasons um, relating to the, the uh, close proximity of, of animals to a growing population, uh, the rapidity, the, uh, the velocity of modern, modern travel so that, you know, somebody sneezes in, in one part of the world and, and literally within a few days, you have a pathogen that has crossed the planet. And, and possibly because of some changes we are seeing in, in terms of our climate, um, that we really do face a, a future in which um, in which outbreaks of disease, new new diseases, um, are likely likely to occur. Not every one of them will become a dangerous worldwide pandemic, uh, but certainly our our ability to respond to new sudden outbreaks of diseases we're not familiar with. Um, I suspect is going to be tested again, again in in the coming years. You spend some time in researching and writing this, looking at the economic impacts of pandemics, and I I don't want to gloss over those, but I'm going to because I want to move to the stuff that's that's more interesting. But I want I do want to point out that the economic impacts do feed into the issues of public resistance and political dynamics and ultimately to potential political violence. So the issues of unemployment and the widening of economic disparities, the the suffering of some parts of the world more than others, the absolute poverty that can result from pandemics, all of those are real and I don't want to minimize those, but I do want to feed that into the wider issue of public resistance to crackdowns the COVID experience was the first experience that uh, a lot of people had, especially a uh, younger generation, to the idea of public safety measures at a grand scale, whether it's quarantining or shutdowns. And yet, crackdowns against pandemics aren't new. The Black Death, people, what, had the Red Crosses put on their doors and were isolated. But public resistance to crackdowns and popular uprisings um, whether to vaccination efforts or whether to government efforts to protect public health, that goes back at least to smallpox in the 1770s, but certainly was widespread in the in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Right? Give us give us some examples of that. How previous pandemics really gave us should have given us some sense that there was eventually going to be some mass public, uh, if not uprising, at least upset about. The crackdowns that were put into effect. Well, in in fact, uh, since the Middle Ages, it, it has been recognized that large scale outbreaks of disease are dangerous. Uh, that they demand aggressive responses. That 
resulted in uh, travel being restricted, uh, that restricted trade. Uh, people, as you point out, people who were exposed or even possibly exposed were quarantined. That is kept apart until they uh, presented no danger. And all of these had a, had a devastating impact on, on the economies and, and the societies that they, they affected. And there was resistance even in the Middle Ages to these. Both uh, there was resistance to the restrictions themselves and of course, at that time, we, we, we did not have government-run programs to provide financial support to corporations and individuals facing economic uh, stress. Uh, uh, survival was at stake. And, and uh, you know, public officials at that time um, who manned the, you know, the gates at, 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 around the walls um, of, of, of cities were, were assaulted. Authorities that tried to enforce these uh, rules uh, were attacked. Uh, doctors were, were attacked. Uh, people who came to take away those people who were infected with the disease take them away to hospitals where they almost certainly were going to, to die and then be dumped into mass graves. There was, in many cases, armed resistance to that. So resistance to control measures is nothing new. Then in the aftermath of, of pandemics, uh, governments often uh, did things that resulted in, in further, uh, provoked further resistance. For example, uh, uh, the Black Death, again, back to the, back to the 14th century, it, it killed off as much as half the population of Europe. This was really depopulation. We haven't seen anything like that with COVID-19, but uh, that depopulation actually fundamentally changed the structure of society. Uh, workers at that time were bound to the land. This was a feudal system, an, a manorial system. They weren't slaves, but they couldn't leave. Uh, they couldn't leave the property without permission of, of, of the lord of that property. They owed that lord. Uh, so many uh, days of labor that was uh, that was the Lord's land, um, and uh, but with a sudden uh, depopulation effect, there were far fewer workers, and that changed the balance. Really, uh, workers were able to uh, demand better deals because there was such a shortage and. And they, they could take off from the manor and find work uh, at, at, at a, under better conditions elsewhere. The crown tried to correct this. It, it, it tried to reinforce uh, these rules. Mm -hmm. um, it tried to make up for its own economic losses during the pandemic. And that in turn provoked greater resistance and even ultimately led years later to England's 
first social revolution uh, in 1381. And so there's a direct sequence of events. We saw that again in the cholera epidemics in Europe in the 19th century, um, where the population resisted and where that resistance uh, reinforced the class divisions in society and probably had a significant impact in radicalizing, mm -hmm. radicalizing European society. That's fascinating that even in, in some historical cases where we don't have perfect information, um, we still can trace through some correlations at a minimum of these epidemics and some of the labor issues with supply and demand, the rights of workers and social, if not social revolutions, at least social unrest. That is, they're all there. Finding the causal relationships is a bit harder. That is, it's hard to say this pandemic caused this political revolution, but the elements are there. And it makes me wonder if looking back at this with the experience you have of a similar issue, which is tracing political causes of terrorism, which is also not always a specific mathematical causal relationship. Did you find that that your changing views on this were, were in some ways expanded because of your, your ability to look backward and say, well, wait a minute, there, there are trends across these dozen or so pandemics that in each individual case, we may not be able to nail down that this pandemic in this country led to this political result years later. But if it happens enough times across enough countries, there is something to this effect. Well, wow, that's a that's a fascinating question, and and you know, think thinking about it for for a moment. Um, uh, first of all, uh, one ought not to um, overstate, uh, you know, any any notion that that I could come up with these the, these a tidy set of linkages, you know, from from pandemic to social revolution. Uh, in, indeed, the historians who have studied these events uh, far uh, in far greater depth than, than I have are, are, are still debating the, the effects of, of the 14th century Black Death 700 years later. So <laughs> it's not as if that's, this that's is a lot of uh, that's a lot of <laughs> dissertations and peer reviews and arguments right. and conferences. Um, but. What, what was fascinating is uh, how many times uh, these, these same themes, these same lines of conflict uh, emerged again and again. And, and therefore, probably these historians of, of you know, plagues in the Middle Ages and, and uh, pandemics in, in subsequent centuries would be I think very little surprised uh, by by what has occurred during COVID nineteen. That doesn't mean it occurred in the same way, but the the same dynamics were were there playing out. Now, how these will play out uh, here again, one wants to remain uh, appropriately humble. We we don't know, and indeed, uh, people say, well, what is what is post-pandemic society going to be like, Brian? And, and my answer is 
you know, uncertainty. Really, we are we are far from from clear how this is all going to unfold. Right. But but we are seeing again these same themes play out. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, depopulation in in the 14th century, leading to a change in how ver- workers uh, uh, serfs uh, at the time. Uh, viewed their condition and and altered their attitudes and you know we fast forward 700 years and and we're looking at things like the the great resignation that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. unprecedented numbers of people leaving their jobs in part because a pandemics caused people to think about their current condition about what they're doing, about how they want to spend the rest of their life, about taking advantage of, of new opportunities that that may arise. And so we are seeing play out, albeit in a very different fashion, in this so-called great resignation, um, some of the same dynamics that have been uh, apparent in in previous centuries, even going back to the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, that was mm-hmm. followed by a period of of labor militancy, of a wave of strikes. Uh, in in a sense, again, it, it, the system adjusting mm-hmm. to fundamental changes. The Great Resignation, by the way, uh, the the term. Is is not the invention of an economist. It's 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 uh, it's by Dr. Klotz, who is a psychologist, and and what it really is, it's less about economics and and I think more about attitudes of people, and pandemics fundamentally change attitudes. Right. That's that's an interesting point that the pandemic may be the ultimate cause or one of the ultimate causes for some of these changes, but there are many intervening variables and you can't say COVID pandemic, great resignation. It's COVID pandemic, people in lockdown, many people, especially knowledge workers in a position where they can function virtually very similarly to the way they functioned in an office environment. Um, but the displacement and the psychological feelings and the the change in in terms of people's values and what what do you value when it comes to the use of your time, the, that's not all the pandemic. That's that's human psychology. That's sociology playing a role here. And the resignation you can trace it back to the pandemic, but it couldn't have happened without some other things along the way that build on many disciplines in the social sciences. That that that's true, and you know, it, it's fascinating, uh, David. Uh, doctors talk about uh, the concept of, of comorbidity. That is, uh, the actual COVID nineteen uh, affects uh, patients differently, and and it affects them in many cases according to their pre existing conditions. Uh, some of them will be hit. Uh, more severely by the disease because of of, of pre-existing conditions, uh, whether it's diabetes or obesity or uh, 
or uh, respiratory problems. Um, and that appears to be the case with societies as well. It, it's not necessarily that the pandemic causes these, these particular uh, uh, phenomena that we are, are seeing now, but rather that pandemics expose and exacerbate the existing uh, inequalities, divisions, and other fault lines of, of our society, and in many cases, even, even in individuals. And so it is, it's, it's not the pandemic as source. It is rather the pandemic as a complicating factor in, in deepening uh, these effects. Absolutely. Uh, doctors also are talking a great deal now about long COVID. That is the, the constellation of, of, of after effects of, of one having suffered COVID. And these range from everything from physiological problems to psychological problems to, uh, uh, you know, to, to issues of, of, of brain fog and things of this sort. And, and sometimes I suspect that we are seeing a bit of the same thing in, as, as we move toward our own post-COVID uh, society, our post-COVID landscape. And, and that is the lingering after effects of the pandemic itself. That is, um, for years after, we are going to be seeing uh, manifestations of this. One study that was particularly fascinating um, in, in, involved the, the flu pandemic of 1918-1919. And there were already clues from previous pandemics that pandemics increased distrust in government institutions. And, and we can naturally understand how that happens. Governments are, are intervening in areas where they normally don't intervene. They're affecting people's lives. And yet there's still, there's still death and, and, and devastation as a consequence of this. Um, one can see that happen. So that part was not was not particularly surprising in in a study that looked at the legacy of distrust following the 1918 pandemic. What was fascinating was that using some some fascinating methodology, um, the researchers were able to demonstrate that this level of distrust was passed on to future generations. That is, hmm. children, um, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren whose, uh, whose forebears had, had suffered deeply through the 1918 pandemic still had uh, higher indications of distrust in government than others who came from backgrounds where the family had not suffered uh, the same kind of 
uh, loss and, and uh, devastation resulting from the pandemic itself. So in other words, the distrust was really inheritable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so as we, as again, as we um, transition to a more post-pandemic society, we're uncertain yet as to what the long-term psychological consequences, both at the societal level and at the individual level, will be of our collective experience of going through the COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. But, but we, do have, we do have a sense of some of the wider political implications of it. That is, some of the reactions to it that build on that distrust that grows manifest themselves, well, really in two ways. And, and we'll do the positive first, and then we'll go back to what you and I like to study the most, which is the, the negative. So the positive is, even during this pandemic, we've seen it, which is it can bring out the best of human nature. You see it in medical personnel. You see it in neighborhoods. You see people looking out for each other in a way that that maybe they didn't when things weren't so dire. Okay, now to the negative. The negative side is some of the worst sides of human nature, like scapegoating, you know, finding someone to blame, which uh, most often in history ends up being one of various minorities, uh, whether religious minorities, ethnic minorities, uh, you name it, whether it's people banding together to take direct action against perceived government overreach. You, you see this transition from the dynamics of, you know, relative deprivation and some of the economic effects we've talked about, some of the personal psychology manifesting itself as resistance to authority and even political violence. Um, talk through that dynamic a little bit. What can we say about the relationship both ways between uh, pandemics and political violence. You know, uh, you you pointed to one thing which has certainly been a common feature of of, of pandemics, uh, uh, going back to the to the uh, Great Plague of Athens. Uh, the Athenians. You're going. You're going old school, Brian. All the way back. Yeah, I mean, the Athenians blamed it on, right? the, on on the Spart. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, blamed it on the Spartans, and mm -hmm. and during the Justinian plague in 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 the late Roman Empire, um, it was blamed on what was then a rising uh, minority of Christians. Um, and through the Middle Ages, uh, societies, Christian societies, blamed it on the Jews or on the gypsies. Um, uh, in more recent years, we, we've seen uh, the blame fall on, on Asians. Um, and and not, just in, not just in the COVID-19 pandemic, but I mean, there were uh, during the late 19th century, early 20th century, there there were violent attacks on 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 Asians in in this country uh, as a consequence of of outbreaks of, of of disease. So that that's a common feature. Uh, we do see uh, evidence of in 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 previous pandemics of a 
of a fraying of the fabric of society, of an increase in, in antisocial behavior. Um, now, again, those who, who study this say, well, this reflects, you know, a prolonged isolation, anxiety. Uh, we see increases in irritability. Um, uh, one thing we are seeing in, in the current uh, pandemic, which to me is, is, is fascinating uh, uh, from the standpoint of, of violence, um, increases in violence itself mm -hmm. are, are not without precedent. So, so you know, our, the murder rate in the homicide rate in the United States in in 2020 jumped up by about uh, close to to 30 percent in the united states and it was followed by another uh increase uh in 2021 less dramatic but if we put those 24 months together we've seen in the united states a statistical increase of homicides by 38 percent now that's that's a dramatic uh, that's a dramatic increase. It's mm -hmm. the largest gain that we've seen in, in many, many decades. Uh, but apart from murders, which you can count easy, we're seeing another phenomenon, which we really don't have a way to capture statistically yet. And that is the, the increase in what I'll, I'll simply call a, a social, a, a random social aggression. Mm -hmm. That is, these are acts of violence, unprovoked violence, uh, not connected with ordinary crime. I mean, we're not talking about muggings here or armed robberies and, and which have no political nexus. There's no ideological motivation. This is simply uh, people uh, at random behaving violently toward one another. You know, in New York uh, in 2021, there were uh, over 60 people pushed off of subway platforms into the path of oncoming trains. Right. That itself is not a, a new crime, but, you know, certainly a dramatic increase in, in uh, behavior. We're seeing just random attacks. In some cases, we're picking this up in uh, at train stations on surface transportation and uh, interestingly enough on airplanes as well with unruly passengers which has become a, a major problem and it's not because of the venues themselves except that these are simply places where populations of strangers come together and and people seem to be on edge, quick to violence. Uh, that was a feature that was noted in the Middle Ages following the Black Death. Again, people on edge, quick to violence. Uh, and we're seeing it again now. Uh, we don't have good statistics, uh, but it has become a major issue. Is, is it the result of isolation? Is it the result of of social stress? Mm -hmm. is, it, uh, is it the result of, of, of widespread mental illness? Uh, um, 
we, we don't have an explanation. And, and so back to, to my field of trying to understand uh, violence, collective violence, terrorism, things of that sort, this is one area that I'm really trying to understand. And indeed, in the process of gathering more detailed information, both quantitative and qualitative about these incidents, to try to get a handle on what's going on here. It, it is a phenomenon. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One other factor that builds into this before we do talk specifically about terrorism and uh, the use of biological weapons is the issue of communications as a political repercussion of pandemics during any pandemic. And we've seen it in the COVID-19 pandemic. Public officials um, were at least accused of and sometimes did provide inconsistent and conflicting information, which feeds into some of these dynamics we've talked about in terms of mistrust and, and distrust. But that, that's not unique to pandemics, right? Whenever there's an issue with communication, it it exacerbates issues of cultural divide. And you tell a story about an investigative company where you were working that was called in to assist with a major American corporation whose founder had been accused of uh, worshiping Satan and devoting corporate profits to a satanic cult. Um, talk through that case study and the issue of communications and what you learned from that and, and how that really illuminates some things about the way that pandemic communications have political results. You know, that particular case and the phenomenon we're talking about really has to do with rumors and how rumors spread. And yeah. in, in looking at that case, I was called in to, to assist. Uh, we were actually uh, just like epidemiologists who trace back to patient zero. We, we looked at the rumor we had, dates of the, the very first reports of, of, of the rumor. And we were actually able to, on a map, plot a timeline and, and, and go backward and, and in a sense, uh, not quite find patient zero or, you know, source of rumor number one. Um, but we were able to localize the, where it first occurred and we were then able to, to 
look at how it spread. And it was following the interstate highway, which was fascinating. It was, it was going right down. You could, you could track it. Uh, uh, the reports of, of, of the rumor uh, as it began to spread across, in, in particularly the southeastern part of the United States. And, you know, I, I actually ended up as part of that case talking to theologians because the question I had is, is this is about the devil and, and you know, who who is likely to believe this? And, and it yeah. turns out people who believe in the devil, not as not as a, a theological abstraction of evil, as a, a real entity, in a sense, a a living, fire-breathing devil. Um, and so that gave us some clues of, because of, uh, we were able to, to um, use, in a sense, the distribution of, of religious beliefs uh, uh, on, on, on maps. And it, it enabled us to predict where the rumor was likely to find root uh, find a, in a sense, a uh, uh, you know a hospitable environment, and where it was not likely to go, and that enabled us really to get beyond the rumor. Just as when you fight a wildfire, you 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 get out beyond it and you yep. create a perimeter around it. Yeah, and and therefore we were able to block that particular rumor. But here again, just as in dealing with a um, a contagious disease, uh, rumors mutate, and the rumor went right up to the edges of where we tried to block it, and it mutated into another form, and went right beyond the perimeter. And, and took off in a wow. in a new direction, and and again, that's you know that's certainly something we've seen with all of the multiple variations of of COVID nineteen. And we're talking, Brian, we're talking about the late eighties, early nineties, and that's not even today's environment of the internet, social media, twenty four seven news channels, uh, heightened partisanship. I have a feeling that those rumors would have mutated faster, would have spread well beyond any perimeter you could have set up. Um, even though it's only been, what, 30 years since you did that, it's almost a different political environment now. It, you, you're absolutely right. We did not have to deal with the internet. Um, we were not dealing with social media. We were dealing with something that was spreading primarily you know, mouth-to-mouth, uh, -mouth, uh, primarily by individuals, occasionally propagated on a radio talk show or something like that, or a TV talk show, but we did not have the internet. And in today's environment, that has fundamentally changed things in terms of the velocity uh, and the the magnitude of reach uh, that the internet and social media provide. And mm -hmm. uh, we certainly could not have, you know, in today's, in today's in environment. 
and and that's that is a fundamental change um now back to the political differences you know look if we were dealing with something like the black death which as i said wiped out as as much as half the population of of, of europe Literally, that is bodies piling up in the street. And and COVID-19, fortunately, um, never got to that level. I mean, we're still talking about something that um, has fortunately uh, killed, you know, approximately a third of 1% of the American population. Now, in terms of total numbers, that's yeah. big. I mean, that's, that's many, that's many, many, many lives, and I and I don't think either one of us wants to minimize that. But compared to something even like the 1918-1919 pandemic, and certainly to some of the pandemics in the Middle Ages, it's it's an entirely different level. It is, uh, and 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 so um, what that has meant. I mean, first of all, these numbers that are being reported you know, in, in the press, uh, are, are just that they're abstract numbers. And in the absence of, of visible evidence of imminent doom, again, bodies piling up in, in the streets, the, the risk to human life can be weighed against the risk to economic well-being, individual freedom, potential social disorder, and people can come to different conclusions. And, and people have come to different conclusions about whether greater harm was done by the social distancing, by the isolation, by the closing of schools, uh, by the shutting down of, 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 of a great chunk of, of commerce, or is, was the greater threat the the loss of life. Now, again, we go back to to pre-existing conditions. Given that the United States is was already going into the pandemic, a a polarized uh, uh, society politically. Our politics were have have deeply divided the nation. Um those differences very, very quickly conformed to uh, political attitudes. And, and what it did is it, it really deepened the political divide. And so, you know, had, had COVID-19 posed a much greater threat to life, then somehow the shared dread might have forced social bonding, but yeah. it was serious enough to demand collective action, but not dangerous enough to set aside our our differences. Let's apply this to the issue of, of your primary expertise of terrorism and related to that, the use of biological weapons uh, as, as a tool. What does history suggest about the cause and effect links between pandemics and no kidding terrorist activity. Um, and you know, one thing you see right um, immediately is the uh, 
the attempts by political extremists to uh, explain the pandemic in ways that will benefit their particular cause and to exploit it if they can as a recruiting tool. I seem to recall, correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall at least some leaders of the Islamic State um, were claiming that this this is Allah's punishment for the infidels and trying to basically fit COVID-19 into their existing narrative. You're absolutely right. And that that again, historically, is not new. I mean, uh, uh, again, you know, we go back to the to the Roman Empire and people saying, well, we haven't we haven't been paying appropriate attention to our traditional Roman gods. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and instead, we are challenged by these these uh, bothersome Christians. Uh, the gods are punishing us for our substandard zeal. Um, that's that's a recurring a recurring theme, um, and and so so one to explain it in ways that that reinforce the 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 extremist beliefs, then to use it as a recruiting tool. So those who are already uh, white supremacists or anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim or anti-immigration, uh, you know, those those extremists uh, will immediately attempt to exploit the pandemic, uh, not only to scapegoat, but in a sense to encourage to encourage their followers, I recall one thing that appeared on um, on, on one of the um, white supremacist uh, in white supremacist uh, websites, and was moving wrong in those circles. And it and it it was a poster. It was in a sense a mock up of a CDC poster, uh, and it said, "If you are infected with." COVID-19, visit your local synagogue, visit your local mosque, Mm. um, go to your uh, ethnically local, ethnically diverse neighborhood to spread, uh, to spread the contagion. And, you know, again, this, this goes back to a a narrative. There are a lot of, the other thing we've seen on the internet are a lot of online fantasies, genocidal fantasies uh, that, um, you know, how can this be, how can the uh, COVID-19 be exploited? Um, Not simply to increase total casualties, but to affect certain segments of society uh, more than more than others, and here we get into some, you know, almost philosophical areas that have fascinated uh, people uh, uh, for a long time. I mean, we all have an understanding of of, of the concept of, of of genocide, and that is trying to kill as many people of one particular race or religion. Or, or tribe or, or ethnic group, but not 
others. Um, and so uh, something like the pandemic uh, is, is fascinating in terms of its, its capability to kill large numbers of people. Uh, but the challenge, the operational challenge is it, it's just killing everybody. And it's not, it, it's not simply killing the right people, <laughs> uh, uh, so to speak. And, and so we're seeing a lot of, as I say, a lot of genocidal fantasies and so on. I don't know that COVID-19, the pandemic itself, has opened, uh, given political extremists any uh, new ideas that they haven't thought about already. What it has done clearly is it, it has prompted a lot of people to think about biological weapons. And that probably is not a good idea. I mean, right. that's, that's a, such a good point because I think in the general public, the fact is during the COVID pandemic, we have not seen catastrophic terrorist attacks. We haven't seen a 9-11 style event. We haven't seen, uh, certainly in, in the West, uh, we haven't seen what we would consider even a major plot that was that was uh, brought to fruition. So I think the, the general view is that terrorism, if not stopped, that the pandemic certainly dampened the terrorist impulse. But your point is there's there's two factors there. One is that there's the belief in terrorism, that many people believe that the threat of terrorism has increased. And that feeds into these general general political issues. And secondly, of course, that the whole idea of using pathogens as weapons is not new. And it has been, been done in the past, including in the United States uh, in the 1980s. But has that put the idea into people's heads enough that it's only a matter of time before somebody weaponizes a, a pathogen in a new way? It, it, it is a cause for concern. And certainly what we, we have seen that as well, that this has brought, uh, the pandemic has brought renewed attention uh, to the area of of pandemics of, of widespread outbreaks of disease, whether those have natural causes uh, or represent uh, an, an escaped uh, an escaped pathogen from from some biological laboratory, which was, you know, certainly is one of the uh, one of the explanations. Uh, for the origins of COVID-19, or whether it is a deliberate attack uh, by a state or non-state uh, enterprise, that has become a, a major issue. Now, a, a, again, to look at this more, uh, 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 more broadly for a moment, and to bring in some of the other complicating factors that you alluded to in, in your earlier comments, uh, which is appropriate, we are now not just dealing with the aftermath of COVID-19 and the possibility of new outbreaks of, of disease, um, but 
we're also dealing with a, a major war for the first time in, in decades in, in, in Europe, uh, a war that has had, um, you know, very, very um, uh, far-reaching effects in terms of world food supplies, um, and that has already brought about the, the specter of the possible use of nuclear weapons. And that, that environment, those two in, in combination, have created even greater uncertainty of, of, about the future. Uh, and a third dimension is, is, of course, what we see in terms of weather-related events, um, widespread droughts across the world, which are resulting in famines in, in some parts of the world. You know, and, and here we are in, in the 21st century, and we're dealing with, we're dealing with pestilence, we're dealing with war, we're dealing with famine. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and that, again, um, does affect our, our individual and collective mindsets and, and creates for, for many people an, an extremely stressful environment. And we're not sure how people are going to react to that. And it's, it is important to note that, you know, the idea of biological terrorism, you know, isn't new. I mean, even in fiction, the, the 19th century had several novels that were talking about germ warfare and H.G. Wells famously wrote The Stolen Bacillus about, as I recall, it was uh, an anarchist plot to poison the water supply in London or somewhere else in the UK with, uh, was it cholera? It was something of that sort. Uh, so this isn't a new idea. It's not that COVID-19 is going to create an idea that isn't out there, but it's one of those things that with all the other things you've mentioned that we are collectively worried about now, the the threat of terrorism on the grand scale certainly hasn't gone away. And the, the threat of biological terrorism may be something that we need to pay even more attention to now. No, that that's absolutely true. And as I say, it's not a it's not a prediction that biological terrorism will occur. And and I tend to shy away from statements, you know, not if but when that imply a degree of inevitability. Right. Uh, but uh, again, because of the combination of warfare, the the weather and climate. Uh, you know, developments that we are seeing, how everyone feels about those, uh, plus these, these outbreaks of, of disease, um, that we are now in a, a new in, environment. And at the same time, interestingly enough, um, our ability to mobilize either globally or nationally uh, to deal with these has become more difficult. One of the casualties of the pandemic is governability. Um, we're already dealing with deeply divided societies. We're dealing with a growing distrust in, in institutions, uh, in our political systems. Um, we are dealing with economic stress um we are confronting 
um, in a sense, a uh, the phenomenon of anti-science, um, and and we're dealing with with disinformation, misinformation that that spreads on the internet, uh, you know, at uh, literally at, at 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 the speed of light, yeah, um, and that's that that's something that we're not well organized right now to to deal with and it's uncertain how we will deal with that i mean how will we um how will we deal with these with these challenges especially in a democratic society which is which is always going to be a a, a bit a, a a bit more disorganized and, and 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 certainly turbulent than than an absolute dictatorship but you know to to look at the contrast by the way democracies didn't perform exceptionally well uh the in the pandemic um uh the advanced countries of the world didn't perform exceptionally well which is not to say that totalitarian countries did especially well either. And we look now at China in their absolute shutdowns to, to right. uh, deal with outbreaks of COVID-19, which are still taking place in the country. And, and you know, I, I, I see recently that they're, they're facing growing resistance and violence in, in China. So how do, how do we govern in in an environment where for a variety of reasons which the pandemic has exacerbated how do we govern especially in democracies and remain democracies sure and it really highlights the dynamic you brought up earlier which is that there have been thousands of years of political theory trying to devise what's the the ultimate purpose of the state and collective action and these reactions to covid really highlight this, that on the one hand, you can say that the main purpose of the the state is to protect the well-being of the overall state, in which case economic health is part of that. And you you can't do do too dramatic of a shutdown because it hurts the economy. And maybe it's actually worth sacrificing some lives and taking some casualties to do that in a metaphor for actual physical war. On the other side, of course, is the fact that the good of a country could be measured in terms of the welfare of the population, in which case the priority is on saving lives, even if that means interrupting social, political, economic activity to do so. And you're right. You've seen both countries like at one extreme, um, not necessarily succeeding, and then countries at the other extreme not succeeding. So it doesn't actually give us any purchase on that fundamental political question of which way of looking at the collective good is right in all cases. No, that you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and so, and as I say, we're seeing, we're, we're seeing the, all of these, these trends come together in in a much more turbulent world in, in, in a certain respect. And and of course I speak as, as, as an older, as an older man, Um, you know, yes, we have gone through turbulent, times in our own history. I mean, in, in our own country, gosh, the, the 1960s were, were a period of enormous turbulence and, and not a small volume of, of domestic political 
turmoil and, and violence that gave rise to the uh, the terrorist bombing campaigns in this country of the 1970s. So the mm-hmm. fact that we have gone through this before, and you know, one can have a personal memory of that period, <clears throat> is somewhat reassuring. At the same time, um, the you know, we we look at these new developments and and a deeper polarization and and the technology of social media. And, um, you know, the um, mass resistance along these philosophical lines uh, and and you say, you know, what perhaps the past, uh, you know, that we that we saw was comparatively uh, less challenging, more tranquil, although during the Cold War we faced, you know, the prospect of, of, of nuclear war. In many respects, that was that was something that was more manageable than what we are what we are confronting now. And so it, yeah. it is worrisome. And that is not it's not that the pandemic again has caused that. It is that the pandemic has exposed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and exacerbated it. To put a bow on this, Brian, I, I'd like to connect this conversation to uh, a recent work you've published elsewhere, which which takes on a really difficult challenge, uh, and you dive right in, which is trying to create a pragmatic, no kidding strategy to counter domestic political violence uh, while doing no harm. That is, without you know, putting, putting alcohol in the flames. Um, in your way of writing that up in the U S military Academy's publication, the CTC Sentinel, you write about many of the dynamics that have combined to make this a particularly dangerous moment for domestic political violence in the United States. And among those factors, it is, is by far not the only one, <clears throat> but among those factors um, are factors that are correlated with the pandemic, things that the pandemic itself exacerbated. And I'm wondering if you could kind of make that connection for us here to close out. How is it that the rise in potential and actual domestic political violence in the U.S. that I know you're concerned about enough that you've crafted a strategy to try to deal with it? How is how is the pandemic feeding into and blending with that to make this an even more sticky problem? Well, we were already dealing with a a, a fraught situation, um, and and perhaps that situation is the right word. You know, I'm a I'm a former soldier and and was commissioned in the infantry, and the first thing you learn as a, as an infantry officer is everything depends on on the terrain and the situation and so before crafting or thinking about any strategy you 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 look in in this sense at the at the political terrain and and the situation and 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 that tells you that uh the the united states because of our political divisions because of this uh because of the increase in 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 uh random violence and, and individual violence 
Um, thus far, fortunately, not many manifestations of, of collective violence. But, but because of that, the, the, the United States is in a delicate situation. And, and as any physician, the, the first rule is do no harm. And, and so you want to be careful mm-hmm. in terms of any type of, of approach, uh, any type of strategy that you, you don't make conditions worse. And, and, and we could end up inadvertently doing that so easily. Uh, and, and, and therefore, um, the, the strategy that I recommend, the elements of what I call a pragmatic strategy, and pragmatic is the operative word, it really aims uh, is primarily a set of cautionary notes. In other words, um, be, be very, very careful that you don't do something to make things worse. Uh, you want to isolate those who might carry out acts of violence. Certainly you'd like to prevent that, but not do so in a way that turns half the country into enemies of the state. Um, you, you want, you, you need, you need to prosecute when necessary. The, the law really provides the guardrails against political violence but the prosecution ought to focus on the crime, not political motivation. Um, and, and that is don't get, don't get deeply into, uh, into the idea that a strategy to counter political violence will become part of a political crusade to deal with uh, to advance one's political agenda, that, that would be extremely dangerous. We have to keep law enforcement here in a in a widely accepted law enforcement role. Um, so those are some of the elements of it, and we may even, you know, one of the trends has been really over the past twenty-five years or so. Uh, there's been great pressure on law enforcement to move from a traditional reactive posture where a crime is committed and, and law enforcement uh, investigations attempt to identify the perpetrator, apprehend that individual and bring them into a courtroom. Um, that's a traditional approach. And the pressure has been, especially as a consequence of terrorism, that we have to instead move first to prevent. So we have to intervene and affect the, 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 the thinking and motivation of those who might be involved. Um, that, that might have to be not abandoned, but we might have to back off on that a bit. And if we're going to, I'm, I'm not saying police should not intervene where they can to prevent a crime from taking place. But the idea of broader social interventions Mm. to identify persons who might be vulnerable to radicalization and recruitment to violence is something, again, we want to be careful of. And and it's, 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 it's very, very interesting. Um, 
to look at the parallels in terms of dealing with, uh, with outbreaks of disease and dealing with, uh, with, in a sense, rising violent ideologies. Um, do we, we, we try to adopt extraordinary measures to head off political violence, uh, which might be in certain circumstances counterproductive in terms of holding our political system together? Uh, or do we instead say, look, we're going to have to accept that some events, tragic events will occur uh, and we're not gonna, going to be able to stop these. And if we try to intervene, then we are going to risk deepening the divisions and making things even worse. So there, that is a we tough, ought not to think of ideology right as a Ryan. contagious disease. I got to tell you, that's, that's a hard message for people to hear. But something important to think about is, uh, and you caveated that at the beginning by saying, no, if there's an actual criminal act, yes, law enforcement needs to do its job. But the idea of, in a sense, you know, holding back on, I don't know what you'd call it, pre-crime, holding back on issues that are radicalizing in order not to spur the radicalization. There's definitely a lot of debate over that, but that's, like you said, that's why the operative word is a pragmatic strategy, because you're trying to find something to put into action that does no harm and makes things better in the medium to long term. No, that 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 really is is critical, and and what we face now in this country in terms of domestic uh, uh, political violence is, in my view, going to be a lot more difficult than our comparatively, you know, there were certainly egregious uh, 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 failures and and injustices done at certainly at the beginning, but we did manage in a post 9-11 environment the the threat posed by homegrown jihadists right. now right. there were there were some ter- there were some tragedies to to be sure but but overall as i say it it, it can be judged um to have have worked that is not going to be the template, however, for our strategy going going forward. There are just so many so many differences. We're we're not dealing with something that is seen in the country as an alien ideology or belief mm-hmm. system. We're, mm-hmm. we're we're dealing with whether it's philosophical beliefs or whether it's deeply embedded um, prejudices in our society. We're, we're, we're dealing with currents in our history that, that, that go back a couple of centuries. Yeah. We're, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to be able to suddenly in the name of, of uh, countering political violence, uh, strip mine American society of bigotry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and we ought I, not I to have that. Wish, I wish you were wrong. But I fear you're right about that, which is we, we, we deal with the society we have, not, not with the society um, that we'd idealize. Um, 
these are all challenging issues and and I appreciate your your insight and really your perspective on these to to help illuminate some of our current dynamics through the study of of the plagues and the recoveries from them but also trying to look at what's what's different and what's the same about that in its impact on domestic political violence but you know we do end the podcast episodes with a reach into our chatterbox and I'm going to pull out a random question to close Brian, who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Oh, uh, golly. Um, I would almost want to say in some respects that we, we want to go back to some of the, some of the works that fall outside of, of the more narrowly defined realm of, of political terrorism. I mean, we want to look at things like Eric Hoffer's The True Believer, which gets into the dynamics of people's belief systems that, that we want to look at um, in, in, in some cases, e- even going back to uh, some of the novels that were written in the 19th century, early 20th century about anarchism and and where where the novelist really got a handle on, on people's attitudes and beliefs. This is uh, the analysis of, of political violence is not really about events. That's, uh, you know, you can find that in a chronology, right? It's, it's a, about human behavior. This is this is right. about psychology, human the sociology. I mean, you immediately when you bring up anarchist novels, I immediately go to uh, G.K. Chesterton and the Man Who Was Thursday, uh, which was just—I I don't want to say fun because it was disturbing in its own way, but what an interesting way of looking at the social dynamics of uh, of early terrorism. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. You have to read things like Dostoevsky and, and things of this sort to, to, to get at notions of, of how, people, how people think. Um, and, and so, it, again, it's not a matter of, of nominating, you know, the, the expert on terrorism. It, it's really about understanding human behavior, which is so much more mm-hmm. difficult. <laughs> and without any assumption that you're going to get the answer right. That's the hard part. <laughs> you gain insight, you gain some understanding, but you don't, uh, it's not a magic solution machine, right? Right. Well, Brian, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your experiences and insights. Thanks for coming on Chatter. Well, thank you so much, and I, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, obviously, as I said, you know, at the outset, this is something I've worked on for decades. Uh, that leads to a problem that I can speak about it for days, unless interrupted. <laughs> and, and again, thank you for the excellent questions. I've I've really enjoyed it. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Mm-hmm.